On July 18th of this year, the world celebrated the 100th birthday of the late Nelson Mandela. In a rare US appearance in Dalba Mandela, the grandson that lived with and was raised by Nelson Mandela sat down with the Ivy community to discuss a lifetime of lessons and observations growing up with the man who risked everything for what he believes in. Continuing the Mandela legacy, Ndaba is the co-founder of Africa Rising, an organization committed to a renewed state of mind and purpose for a new African generation. In conversation with journalist and author Nicole Lappin, Ndaba Mandela discussed his recent book, Going to the Mountain, Life Lessons from My Grandfather, Nelson Mandela, in a conversation that you can hear here on the Ivy Podcast. History. This is not going to be a history lesson tonight. We're going to get some real stories, and we're going to dig deep. Um, and that was so raw and real in this book. I mean, I really, I, I think that you, how, how did you feel about getting, like, super, super personal? Um, yeah, I mean, I think I just wanted to do a, a good job uh, of giving people a sense of uh, our country, a sense of the old man. And, uh, yeah, just, just, be, just be open, you know, because I'm... I come from a background where you always have to have to close yourself off and protect yourself. So I think it's a, it's a good way to try and get to know you know somebody through a different a different side. And that's exactly what you do. So when was the first time? So the old man. When did you meet the old man? Because when I first saw it, you were eight years old, right, or eight ish? Yes. Yes. And you went to prison, and I was like, this is so scary for an eight year old to go to prison. But what was prison like? Well, for me, to be honest, um, my parents told me that I was going to see our, old, you know, our grandfather in prison, so I had a typical image of what prison was like. Scary. Um, yes, yeah, scary, you know, concrete bars. Oh, sorry, I haven't put on this mic. <laughs> Do you want my <laughs> We'll share. Let's go. Let's go quick switch here. Okay, one, two. <laughs> nice. Did anybody hear the first one? Yeah. <laughs> So we arrive um, at this place, but um, it's actually not a prison. It's a house, and it looks like a normal house. Actually, like it's a, a house. house it's a house that looks better than my house. <laughs> you know, and uh, we go inside, and uh, we meet the man, and he's warm, tall gentleman, asking us about, you know, what's our name, what grade you're in, what's your favorite subject, and uh, I look outside, and there's a swimming pool. I don't have a swimming pool. Right? There's a chef, we watched a never-ending story, I mean, it was pretty an amazing day. And that was the first time I had an idea of what I wanted to do when I grew up. You know, unlike many kids who want to be, you know, lawyers and uh, doctors, I told myself when I grow up, I want to go to jail. <laughs> Goals, right? <laughs> Have you grown up? Of course. No, I don't know, because growing old is mandatory, but growing up is optional. What do you... Yes. Have you brought up? I mean, you know, boys will be boys. <laughs> Let me put it like that. Boys will be boys, you know? Because you're a philanthropist, you are a venture capitalist. What would, how would you describe yourself? Like, what would be on your business card right now? On my business card? On the back of your No, I mean, I'm very, I'm very chill. I'm very easy. Uh, I'm Dabo Mandela, founder of Africa Rising. I mean, I'm involved in the agricultural business, but I don't really put that you know, on the front foot. Um, I really try to highlight the work that is needed on the ground uh, in Africa, especially in our rural areas in South Africa. So that's the, that's, the, that's the foot that I put forward most of the time. 
I ask you this because a lot of people ask you if you want to be president. Well, I don't know. That's a very difficult question, to be honest with you, you know, because it's up to the people to choose who their leaders should be. Um, am I eligible for the job? Am I up for it? Um, yes, I think it's important for people who, you know, have their heart in the right place, um, who want to do it because of the right reasons and understand exactly what it entails. You know, you don't want people going in there to try and enrich themselves. So if you have the right people with their integrity, with the right heart in place and the right mind and are doing it for the right reasons, then those people should be encouraged to do the right thing. And um, so, yeah, man, I think we all have to step up and take that position. You know, no matter how uh, difficult it may seem or how, how, how high the mountain you have to climb may be, you know, you have to, you have to challenge yourself and think about the, the rewards, you know, that, that, you, that you will receive. But more than that, you know, one thing that um, the old man, our grandfather, says is that after climbing a great hill and you reach the top of that hill, you realize that there are many more you know, so in life we're going to try to keep climbing and keep a ch and, and, and conquering each mountain as we go from face to face in our lives. What's the next mountain you want to climb? Because that wasn't a joke, by the way. I'm just saying. Well, I guess you know it's important for one, um, especially a man, to 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 have a homestead to create his own family. So, as you know, in our culture, uh, the first step of actually, you know, getting to manhood is going to the mountain, which actually means getting circumcised. So, in our culture, you get circumcised between the ages of 18 to 21, because you cannot be a man when you're born, right? So, for us, it's a rite of passage. And uh, the first thing that happens is actually, you know, that's when they do the cutting uh, of the foreskin, and you're there for about four to six weeks. Um, learning about manhood and what it entails and who you, you know, your history, your roots, uh, your ancestors, they teach you things. Um, so you're not allowed to speak the normal Xhosa that we speak. Uh, you have to call things with a different name, like water, like girls, like men, like window, food, etc. Um, and you basically come out when you're healed. So you stay there, uh, average, you stay about four to six weeks. And then when you come out, so there's a huge celebration um, in the village or in your, your town where you're from, where everybody gets invited. And uh, that's an addition of you know, another man to the, to, the, to the clan, to the tribe. So it's a huge celebration. And so that's the first step of manhood. And then from there, you have to obviously get a wife and have your own kids and your own you know, sort of livestock and you know, your homestead. <laughs> <laughs> Continue that. Uh, so there are people in the local, right, in the tech world, um, 
For us, it's all about teaching young people about the importance of coding and how to access information uh, on the web. Because, as you can imagine, kids in our village finish high school without even touching a computer. You know, and as an organization that's geared towards building a new generation of African leaders that can compete on a global level, it's important that they have sound knowledge of technology. So that is one of our key programs, as well as an agricultural program. I mean, when you, you talk to young kids um, in Africa, around the world, and you talk about the picture of success, you know, most of them, they'll tell you that I'm wearing a suit, I have a briefcase, I'm going to an air-conditioned building. But they forget about the billions of dollars that the farmers are making, you know, by creating weeds and, and livestock that I was talking about, right? And, uh, and all the vegetables that we consume on a daily basis. I told kids the other day when, when I was uh, talking to these kids in our village that, you know, there's a company called Beef Corn in South Africa that makes over a billion rand in, in revenue, and they, they, they couldn't believe me. You know, they, they, told, they told me I was lying. You know, so it's just simple things like that, you know, to make young people understand that, you know, not always looking at the other side as, as being greener. Look at the very same ground that you walk on every day from home to, to work to your office is the very same land that can actually help you break the cycle of poverty that you find yourself in by going to the agricultural business, you understand? So these are the type of things that we try to engage with young people on the ground so that they can be the masters of their own the universe, basically. Seven hundred million, exactly. Sixty percent of the population. Some places, seventy percent of the population, depending on which region you're in, are made up of young people under the age of thirty. So, as Africa develops, you know, we want to make sure that the development that's taking place is not benefiting the multinational corporations that are there, but benefiting the people themselves. But they have to be in a, in a, in a position ready to be able to not only be part of the economy by being producers, not just consumers, but they have to be the ones to produce. You know, how many tech uh, companies that out there are owned by Africa? And you talk about uh, how many of them are actually made by Africans, right? We have Uber today in South Africa, it's making billions of rands. You know, it's, you've got so many different applications, right? Taking money outside, not putting money back in. They're not investing money back in, right? So we have to make sure that with the tech boom, with everything that happened in the world, that we are very much ensured and able to actually be part of that development and steer the development in the direction that we want it to go. People say you're the next Mandela. But that's heavy. That's a heavy legacy to carry. How do you feel when you hear that? Well, the next Mandela, I think, uh, you know, for me, we should try to make sure that they are for my building as the next Mandela. <laughs> make sure that there are hundreds of Mandela's out there. You understand what I'm saying? So we've actually created a program where we're trying to create or build or nurture the next generation of Mandela's. Because when you look at the world, not just Africa, but across the world, right here in your own home, we have the challenge of leadership. Right? Because the right people are not stepping up to the to the to the right place, That's, you know. I know somebody that You know somebody? <laughs> what? <Well, yeah. laughs> <laughs> what are they doing? <laughs> I don't know. They're an entrepreneur. They're a venture capitalist. They're oh, the next president. For you, hello. <laughs> um, but but I think building that legacy is one thing. What would the legacy you want to be? You have a son, and so your son writes, 
going to the mountain life lessons from my father. Um, what's that book called? Well, for me, to be honest with you, um, I think the next step is to reignite that unity and solidarity that Africans once had when we were fighting the liberation movements across the African continent. You know, that was a time when Africans were, they had a clear enemy, who it was, and they organized themselves strategically in order to defeat them. That was slavery, that was conflict, right? So now things have evolved, right? We've gotten our independence. But there's still an enemy out there, but you can't see the enemy. It's not like before where the enemy was the police or the judges. Today there's a greater enemy that's much more difficult to fight because you can't touch them like before, right? It's, it's in the air, right? Because the enemy is really within us. It's within yourself. Because today you talk about the American dream, right? White picket fence, golden retriever. <laughs> Two and one kids, right? Right? But is that the dreams of everybody in the world, or young Africans across deserts, rainforests, you know, who are living in huts where the HIV/AIDS is at a, an alarming rate, right? Those are not their dreams. They just want to have decent housing, right? Or decent clothing or just the basics, basically. They don't want to be they just want a car that can take everybody. It doesn't matter what brand it is, right? So it's about how do we keep our Africanness, our identity in this MTV generation, popping bottles and shaking boogies. You know what I mean? There's a time and place for everything, but our kids through the social media, right? They think that it's that's all about how many followers, how many likes we get. But that's not the real world, right? They're not going to talk about how many Ferraris you drove or how many years you had in the back. They're going to talk about the kind of person you were as a human being on earth, right? Was he a good dad? Was he a good boss? Was he a good brother? Was he a good auntie? A sister, a friend, right? Did he have dignity or integrity, right? You're not going to be talking about how many ships and private jets, you know, the person went on. So we need to also not forget about the important things in life, how we treat each other as human beings, as brothers and sisters, as neighbors, in our own community.
second YouTube album, the, the guys that were our friends who are artists from hang out from the weekend, because he's a DJ, he's an artist, we're like, hey, by the way, guys, it's the same, you wanna come through? Second meeting now, and White's also involved, you understand what I'm saying? So it became just a, an organic thing, because one thing I realized about the image of Africa is that it was not just me who came across this epiphany that, oh, we need to do something about the image of Africa, because when we had that meeting, the people that were at the meeting felt the very same way. So they felt that we have to do something about the image of Africa. And, you know, it became Africa Rising, a youth empowerment agency, right? Get towards building or nurturing the next generation leaders because we cannot continue allowing people seeing us as a place of poverty and disease dictators. And the only positive thing being safari. You know, people need to understand that when you look at all your fashion guys now, whether it's people Tom, whether it's people Goss, no matter which stratosphere they're in or demographic, they're all taking their inspiration from Africa. Right? Whether it's fashion, whether it's music, it's all coming from Africa. You know? So we need to allow people to engage with a different side of Africa. Wanna go on your next holiday? Come to Johannesburg, come to Mozambique, go to Mauritius, some of the most beautiful islands you'll ever see. Right? You wanna talk about investing your money? You know, if you look at the top 10 growing economies in the world today, seven of those are on the continent of Africa. You talk about Rwanda, Angola, you talk about uh, Gabon, you understand? Sierra Leone. These are the countries you need to come invest in. You're not going to get to translate that anywhere else in the world. So people need to be able to engage with the different Africa that they don't show on your TV, basically. Yeah, well, the great story in the book was also about your grandfather's speaking to the bar. I love that story in our language because it shows us how we can create the divide, uh, or bridge the divide in any way. What would you take away from that message as something that we can use in our practical context dialogue? Do you think it plays where there's no more inequality or racism? I mean, we have to work towards it. It's not going to happen automatically. Um, but we can work towards it, and we can uh, lessen it generation by generation. Know, because it's something that is festering from generation to generation and we can't actually do something. I mean, one thing that I learned from the old man is that he said, in order to defeat your enemy, you must work with your enemy because then you become your partner and maybe even your friend, right? So that's what he did very well in prison. Um, for those of you who didn't read the book, a lot of fear or who did. So, they, they, they had a rule in prison that no guard, no, no warden could actually guard Nelson Mandela for more than three months at a time. Because Nelson Mandela, after he's guarded him for three months, he becomes your friend. Because what would happen is that Mandela read and wrote Africans, taught himself fluently, right? Now the guys who were coming in and become wardens, they were, some of them were just finished high school, hadn't even gone to university. So their language wasn't that well. So they would give letters from their loved ones, their mothers, their, you know, writing them letters. They couldn't read the letters. So Madiba would take the letters and translate it for them. And obviously through that, and whatever was translated, they obviously felt a certain way with touch and their soft spots. And, uh, you know, basically, you know, now Madiba's getting extra couple of spaces of bread. <laughs> extra blankets, you know? Those little 
things, you know, maybe a newspaper or two, the Los Times, you know. So through that, you know, when the authorities discovered that obviously they were angry and they'll change the guard. And eventually they just they made a rule that you cannot guard this man for more than three months at a time. Because the answers the answers were straight. <laughs> Well, I don't know, to be honest, because most of the time um, I hear positive things, especially when I travel outside the continent or outside South Africa. But there have been notions uh, within my own country that uh, Nelson Mandela was a sellout. You know, that Nelson Mandela did more for white people than he did for his own people. Um, those are the kind of notions that I heard uh, you know, a couple of years ago. And obviously, I say to them, that means you clearly have not understood your history. Do you understand? Or even read about what Nelson Mandela did. Nelson Mandela was the first commander in chief of the military arm of the of, of, of ANC, right? The, the, the majority part. And basically, him and the younger guys who started the ANC Youth League felt that their peaceful marches and protests were being met continuously by a vicious and brutal attack on an unarmed people. So why should they continue protesting, you know, <coughs> freely and without anything when they're constantly being matched by savage attacks? So there was a new breed that said, oh, let us go and train ourselves. Let us hit back at the enemy. So they did that. He trained six months in Algeria, six months in Ethiopia with Khalid Selassie, and uh, came back to the country, and uh, they, they were bombing uh, infrastructure, basically. Uh, the telephone lines, the post office, etc. They're not actually, you know, going against human lives. But of course, there were casualties in the, in the state of war, you know. Um, so, no, that's one reason. Number two, at the time when Nelson Mandela was about to take over during the elections, between 1990 and 1994, there were so many uh, governments, white people, corporates, who looted the country, literally took billions of billions of rands and took that money and invested in Australia, in London, you name it. So by the time that Mandela was president, they only had three days worth of resources to run the country. How are you going to pay your civil servants, your police, your nurses, your doctors, what have you? So of course there were going to be certain compromises that were going to take place in order for them to be able to find a way to, to run the country, you know, adequately. And now they're not just serving the black population, to serve the whole population. Unlike the previous regime, the apartheid regime would have only given services to 13% of the population. Do you go to love with him because of the growth of childhood? With my grandfather? With my grandfather? Yeah, there wasn't really any serious beef or anything. <laughs> well, like, when did you realize that he's not just the old man, but
took place in Angola, right? Back in the early 70s. Now, because Fidel Castro believed in so much in the freedom of African people and the liberation movement, that he took 30,000 of his troops from Cuba to fight alongside the Africans that they have never met, that they don't know from a bow of soul, to go and die next to these people fighting the forces from South Africa, right? And they actually defeated the forces from South Africa. And they liberated Angola through the machine gun. So for us in Africa, this became a hero, how a general of a country can literally like put his own men in front of the gun for a cause 30,000 kilometers on the other side of the cup just because they have the same belief. Now, if that's not commendable, I don't know what it is. That's a leader. But you have that first row, you Well, I mean, I was lucky enough to grow up with my grandfather, so, you know, when Mike Tyson came over and then Spurs came over, I was there to, to, to witness these things, you know? Was, it, was, it was quite strict, uh, to be honest. Uh, he was a man, obviously, who, had, uh, who was a soldier, so he liked you know, the room to be tidy. If he saw it still was upside down, he would you know, give me a quick, quick tongue lashing. And then he would go and uh, go clean out my room. Um, you know, once he actually made me sleep outside. Okay, he didn't make me sleep outside, but. So basically, I had lost my school jersey and my sweater for the second time. It was winter. And so obviously, I had to tell him because I'm just a young boy at this point here. I need to get him to buy another sweater for school. <laughs> so I went and told him, and his face changed. So I to sleep outside. <laughs> so obviously, I went outside. You know, the first hour, it's okay. The sun's still out. I'm okay with the ball. Then it gets a little bit dark. I'm like, did you think like this is really gonna happen? Listen, next thing you know, as it gets darker, I see my colleague who was the cook bringing the blankets. <laughs> <laughs> so she brought the blanket over to grandfather said I was bringing this. I'm like, oh shit. Now there's no more playing, it's getting dark, and I'm like, okay, I'm you know making my little bed there in the grass. And then my grandfather came out and called me. Go inside, get your son, and go straight to it. That was it. You can tell you, I never lost another test. Did he tell you he was four? Yeah, yeah. It was, uh, you know, that was the main thing, basically. Um, if you got your A's, you would be able to get anything out of it. But if you got uh, your D's and C's like me, no. I mean, for the most part, I was treated uh, normal. 
was her. Blanket. You can't. That's been there for uh, hundred years or so. 
How are you going to get to that point where you try to predict it? Can you get the government involved? I mean, there's just so much, you know, work to do. Um, yeah, so about us in front of ourselves and knowing, you know, how to, how to maximize and how to create value. Do you have a question? Okay, so um, Africa was rising when I hear that term, I hear the whole entire continent. Now, I know that currently Africa Rising is centered in South Africa and what you guys are doing there. Now, as a um, Nigerian-American, um, with the whole like flux of being African being cool now because of like Black Panther and things like that, people are like looking at Africa more, more artists are coming out of there, they're giving more artists a chance, and things like that, fashion are coming out of there. What I, my question is, um, how can Africa Rising create a platform for other people from other countries to get involved so that we can truly make it Africa rising instead of just centered around just South Africa. So I know you have to start somewhere, but I would love to hear and see this initiative in Nigeria and Ghana and Morocco and other places in Africa so you can truly make it what I believe it can be one day instead of like the stigma that we live in huts and we have gorillas as pets when that's not true. So that's my question to you. <laughs> yes, yes. I mean, uh, for us, we are very much, uh, we want to grow, we want to work with uh, different African countries. It's very important uh, that we have partners on the ground um, who can drive, obviously, that information and the contact. Um, so if you have people that you think are very interested to partner with us, we'd be very happy to. Um, obviously, it's just about streamlining and making sure that. That's what wants as, as, as a group, and people are interested. But you know, we have so many different things that we're doing all the time. You know, it's, it's just it's, it's really about management and getting the right people in the place to do the job, uh, implement it correctly. Which is one of the challenges that I've, that I've had. You know, is that uh, people you know, come with great ideas and very noble ideas, uh, but it's just really about the implementation and, and the momentum. You know. Just making sure that you're driving this is, is really the most important part of it. Uh, this is a question about what advice your grandfather might have for America today. Uh, in, in light of our recent election, we're in pretty divided times. Uh, we liberals think Trump supporters have been brainwashed by a con man. The Trump supporters think liberals are being brainwashed by fake media. Most of the people in the room here. <laughs> Uh, sit on, but as we try to reason with each other or argue with each other, uh, we're not finding much common ground so far. How might he advise us to change our approach to our conversations, our dialogue, and try to come to some sort of common ground? I think we need to, you know, we face a similar problem in South Africa, where you had recently xenophobic attacks. And it was on the forebear as the fear of foreigners, where our South Africans were literally attacking Nigerians and migrants for supposedly stealing their jobs, etc., etc., messing up their economy. But at the very same time, you know, we have to remember how we got our independence. We wouldn't have been able to get our independence without the assistance of our brothers and sisters across the continent. How did America find itself in this position of great prosperity? You have not have been able to get here without the hands of your brothers and sisters across the continent of Europe, right? You talk about the continent of South America. Who are the people that built the fundamental 
Was that a gift from friends? Was that a gift from friends? So look at all the things of how we ended up in this great situation of prosperity. It was done by the assistance of your brothers and sisters across the water and across the you know, uh, southern hemisphere. So how can we now forget about where we come from as humanity? Because we built this thing working in unison. It was not done by pure Americans. And if you look at Americans, they'll tell you that, oh, I'm half German, Spanish, Italian, da, 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 da. You know what I mean? It's a, it's, a, it's a mix of people who came to a land of opportunity, who wanted to build something for, for their family, for themselves. Right? So we need to remind ourselves where we come from as a humanity. Because if we forget where we come from, we are definitely going to be lost and we'll never reach our destination of where we are trying to be. Organizations, so it's an honor to 
much gratitude for being here uh, and obviously sharing your insights from not just your experiences growing up with your grandfather, who I admire dearly, but also uh, also for sharing your personal experiences as you grow up yourself as well. Uh, my biggest question is actually pretty, pretty simple. Um, what, what is the single greatest lesson you've learned with your time spent with your great grandfather? That's our show for this week. Thanks again for tuning in to the Ivy Podcast by Ivy, the social university. We are the grad school for life, and our mission is to spark world-changing collaborations by introducing you to the most inspiring people, ideas, and experiences in the world. Check us out at ivy.com for life-changing advice and gatherings, and the foremost thought leaders shaping our world today. For more information about the Ivy community, and to find out about events happening near you, visit ivy.com and email us via membership at ivy.com. Dream big and stay inspired.